BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. I'm Josh Hammer. Welcome back. We'll be joined shortly by Ben Weingarten. Ben is a deputy editor at Real Clear Investigations and all around extremely knowledgeable person when it comes to China, the fight against wokeism and all sorts of other topics. So we are very excited to bring on Ben for you shortly. One item before then. So Jimmy Carter, who is the oldest living president, he is almost 100 years old, has entered hospice care. And that means obviously that he's going to pass away soon. And we wish him nothing but personal peace and comfort and to be surrounded by loved ones and all of that. I am generally not a fan, to put it mildly, of people who go ahead and dance on others' graves. That is here, there, and everywhere a bad look, and it should be condemned. Having said that, I have seen a lot of takes pouring in about just what a good man, aw shucks, Jimmy Carter was. Oh, the old peanut farmer. Oh, the old Georgia peach a churched man who was a devout Sunday school teacher. I do not question Jimmy Carter's personal relationship with his Lord and Savior. I I would never deign to do that. What I can do is remind you that when we are talking about Jimmy Carter here, we are talking about quite possibly the most vile anti-Semitic person to ever hold the office of the presidency. And I don't say those words lightly there. His stance on all things pertaining to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict in particular during his presidency, but most prominently really well after his presidency, just over the past 15, 20 years or so, is not just wrong-headed. We'll unpack that just in a second here. It's not just wrong-headed. It is actually outright vile. But let's first focus on just the mere wrong-headedness, and then we'll kind of get our way to where it is literal terrorist apologia. Let's play a clip, actually, of Jimmy Carter going back, oh, I don't know, about 15 years or so. There's no doubt that within the occupied territories, Palestinian land, that there is a horrendous example of apartheid. Occupation of Palestinian land, the confiscation of that land that doesn't belong to Israel, the building of settlements on it, the colonization of that land, and then the connection of those isolated but multiple settlements, more than 200 of them with each other by highways on which Palestinians can't travel and quite often where Palestinians cannot even cross. So the persecution of the Palestinians now under the occupying territories is under the occupation forces is one of the worst examples of human rights deprivation that I know. So first of all, it is worth noting, and this does not make Jimmy Carter anti-Semitic, but he is simply wrongheaded, as are way too many people when it comes to this topic all across the political spectrum, for that matter, when he speaks of occupation of these so-called occupied territories. This is actually one area that I have written and spoken on at great length. People just don't know what they're talking about, actually, when it comes to international law and the law of occupation. 
I wrote a long essay on this a few years ago. There is actually a principle of international law. I'm going to butcher my Latin here, but it is known as uti posedidis juris, which is Latin for, quote, as you possess under law. It is a very, very well-known principle of international law. I am not going to kind of give a full history here, going back to the British mandate for Palestine and kind of the post-World War I carving up of the Middle East. I'm not going to get into that here. I've written on that extensively elsewhere, but suffice to say for present purposes that under well-established rudimentary principles of international law, the state of Israel has the best legal claim to the West Bank, Judea and Samaria, whatever you want to call it. Now, that does not hold off the table some sort of eventual political settlement. But as a mere matter of legal claim of international law, Israel has by far, by far the best claim to those particular territories. Now, Jimmy Carter also in this clip uses the term apartheid. What a joke. Do you know what the actual apartheid is that is happening in the West Bank, Jane Samaria, whatever you want to call it? It's actually happening the other way around. Just under a year ago, Brooke Goldstein wrote an op-ed for us in Newsweek Opinion kind of pointing this out. And as Brooke reminded the readers, if you are a Palestinian in the West Bank and you sell land to a Jew there, you can be punished by death by the Palestinian Authority. There actually is literal apartheid happening right now in the West Bank. It just doesn't work the way that Jimmy Carter thinks it does. It actually works the exact opposite way. In fact, under Palestinian Authority, quote unquote, law, to the extent that we can even consider it law, someone who sells land to a Jew is considered, quote, a traitor to the religion, the homeland and the people. Disgusting stuff. Absolutely disgusting stuff there. Furthermore, when Jimmy Carter speaks about kind of the borders of Israel and, you know, you hear all this talk about the 1967 borders, the 1948 borders. By the way, Shimon Peres, if I'm not mistaken, referred to those borders as the Auschwitz borders because it would actually shrink Israel at its narrowest part to a mere nine miles wide. And on the eastern part of that nine mile gap, the Palestinians or whoever is there would have kind of the geographical highland, be able to kind of rain down rockets. It wouldn't end well. But Another just very quick historical anecdote, those are not permanent lines. Those lines are literally an armistice agreement from after the 1948 war, where, by the way, after Israel declared independence in 1948, what you had was you had all the surrounding Arab armies invaded from all sides. So the man fundamentally just does not know what he's talking about. But again, this makes him merely wrongheaded, ignorant and wrongheaded. It doesn't necessarily make him full on anti-Semitic. Here is what does. I kid you not. Literally within the past decade, this man is like well into his upper 80s, 90s at this point. Why is he not just like retiring and enjoying the latter years of his life? But no, what Jimmy Carter has done over the past 10, 15 years, he has gone over there, tried to go to Gaza. He has openly praised Hamas. He has literally praised Hamas. He was speaking here in 2015. He was speaking of Hamas Politburo Chief Khaled Mashal who, if not mistaken, actually doesn't even live in Gaza. He lives in Doha, Qatar. That's neither here nor there. This is Jimmy Carter speaking of the effective head of Hamas. He said, quote, I don't believe that he's a terrorist. He's strongly in favor of the peace process. Are you kidding me? <laughs> Unbelievable. Hamas is recognized by the EU, Japan, Canada, the United States, basically every civilized country around the world as a militant Islamist genocidal terrorist organization that is fundamentally no different than any other Sunni jihadist outfit out there like an Al-Qaeda or an ISIS. You know, Jimmy Carter's stance on Hamas is so ludicrous, in fact, 
that even Barack Obama, the most anti-Israel president, at least since Jimmy Carter, possibly ever, Jimmy Carter's stance is so ludicrous that Barack Obama even condemned it. Let's listen to that clip. I will work on behalf of peace with the full knowledge that Israel still has bitter enemies. We see their intentions every time a suicide bomber strikes. We saw their intentions in the Katusha rockets that Hezbollah rained down on Israel from Lebanon in 2006. And we see it today in the Qassams that Hamas fires into Israel every day from Gaza. Uh, that's why I have a fundamental difference with President Carter and disagreed with his decision to meet with Hamas. By the way, in that same interview where Jimmy Carter described Khaled Mashal of Hamas as being, quote, strongly in favor of the peace process, he also condemned Benjamin Netanyahu for not supporting the peace process. He literally sided with Hamas as being more peace-seeking than Israel. Uh, you, you can't make this up. L- let me just read for you a brief clip of the Hamas organizational founding charter from the late 1980s, just so you get a snippet as to what this organization stands for. I, I am reading from the Hamas charter here, quote, the prophet Allah bless him and grant him salvation has said, quote, the day of judgment will not come about until Muslims fight the Jews, killing the Jews when the Jews will hide behind stones and trees. The stones and trees will say, oh, Muslims, oh, Abdullah, there is a Jew behind me. Come and kill him. Only the Garkar tree, evidently a certain kind of tree, would not do that because it is one of the trees of the Jews. Does this sound like an organization committed to peace? Unbelievable. Really just unbelievable. So like I said at the beginning here, he is in hospice care and we wish him nothing but personal peace and comfort and to be surrounded by loved ones and all of that. And that's all we have to say about Jimmy Carter. Let's take it to a quick commercial break. We will be joined momentarily by Ben Weingarten. Stay with us. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. So as promised, we have a long overdue appearance on the show today from a longtime good friend. That is Ben Weingarten. You can read Ben's columns at Newsweek. He's also a deputy editor for Real Clear Investigations and a co-host of mine on the unrelated NatCon Squad podcast. So Ben, this is long overdue, my friend. Thanks so much for joining us this week. 
Well, thanks for having me, Josh. It's a pleasure. So, Ben, I, I want to go deep on China with you. I think that's where I want to spend the bulk of our time. You, you've been working on a book on this subject, and it's a very frequent topic of, of your columns and your commentary, and it's never been more pressing in the news given everything that's happened, of course, with the spy balloon and this recent meeting in Munich between Antony Blinken and his Chinese counterpart. But before getting into the substance and all the hard-hitting stuff, I kind of want to just ask you a biographical question because I think you and I have a fairly similar career trajectory. You know, I kind of escaped from big law into this broader conservative media world. And I th- you had a fairly similar journey, albeit not from law, but from a corporate banking background. I'd be curious what exactly it was that got you into the full-time day-to-day fight. Was there kind of like a single moment that kind of got you in or was it more of a slow process? Well, for me, and this certainly informs my thinking more broadly about politics and the trajectory of the country and the art of the possible or impossible, uh, depending upon the circumstances. Uh, Luckily, from my vantage point, I grew up in a political household where policy and politics were always the discussion at the breakfast table, the lunch table and the dinner table. So my father was a a town councilman. He ran a budget office in our county. He became a state legislator. And then he ultimately ran for the U.S. House and lost a brutal three or four way Republican primary back in 2000. Uh, This was in the rough and tumble world of New Jersey politics and where my father was probably far more conservative than many of his constituents, but still was able to rise to the state legislator level. But I was passing out campaign literature, walking around town with my dad from the time I was approximately five years old, always hugely focused on the direction of the country, economics, and then over time shifting more towards national security and foreign policy and and steeped in and relish studying our history. So it was ever present. And then I went to Columbia where I studied economics and political science and wrote under pen name at the time for uh, several of the Breitbart sites when Andrew Breitbart was with us and got to know him a little bit. And basically, when I got out into the world, thought that I would pursue investment banking, particularly in bankruptcies and restructurings, because it it combined sort of a, a qualitative and quantitative focus. There's a legal aspect. There's a financial analysis aspect. It felt like a liberal arts education in finance. And I thought I'd do that for a long time and then be able to you know, hopefully focus on politics you know, at a somewhat reasonable age. But essentially, I couldn't kick the bug. And after several years working in investment banking, I thought, if I'm not going to be exceptional at this or I don't have the fire in the belly for it, Uh, Before getting any kind of golden handcuffs, I better get out of this industry and focus on what I'm really passionate about. And that led me back into conservative media. So it was kind of ever present in my life. And I feel you've only got one life. You have to pursue what you're most passionate about. I hated the trajectory of the country under the Obama administration, which was sort of during the latter half of my college days. And then when I first got out into the world of high finance and uh, felt incumbent upon me to pursue what I felt I was put on earth to do, hopefully, which is to enter the, the battle of ideas and 
hopefully leave a better country for my kids and grandkids than the one that we've been lucky enough to inherit. Well, you know, that's why I asked you, because as many conversations as you and I have had over the years, both on camera and off camera, I actually had no idea, honestly, that that you initially kind of got into this space writing under a suit, as as they say these days, a a pseudonymous byline, let alone that you knew the late, great Andrew Breitbart before he passed away. I wish I could say the same thing. Unfortunately, our, our paths never crossed. But, you know, you and I share a, a shockingly similar similar tale in many respects there. I mean, I can so vividly recall just, you know, pounding away at these corporate M&A contracts at a big law setting kind of well into the night and just thinking to myself, like, what the hell am I doing? Um, and, you know, like, obviously, I mean, there is nothing wrong whatsoever with anyone, you know, choosing to earn a, a good living. But sometimes that that fire in the belly is just utterly insatiable. And, you know, I, I think I I think I can fairly say that the movement and the country is better for you dedicating your career to it. So thanks for explaining that. So let's go ahead and dive in on on the substance now. So let's let's start with China. I mean, China, from my perspective, is the issue of the month. It is the issue of this century. It is certainly the issue for our generation and perhaps our children's generation. Give us your thoughts on this recent Anthony Blinken meeting with his Chinese counterpart in Munich, which I've read some kind of conflicting reports about. And what exactly is China's position to this day on the spy balloon? Like, are they continuing to, to, to say that it's a meteorological object that was blown off course? Are they owning up to it at all? Well, as, as best as I can see, they've tried to play this in what they perceive to be the most favorable propagandistic way. Essentially, it would seem trolling us originally on the idea that this was some meteorological balloon when we have evidence dating back to at least 2018 that they were testing out just these kind of airships. We know that the administration itself, after Montanans spotted the balloon in the sky, then went around to the world and spoke about America's knowledge of this multifaceted global strategy of using spy balloons to surveil. And by the way, dating back to 2018, China at least showed the capability to use such balloons to deliver weapons like a hypersonic missile. We know that they could also be used to deliver an EMP, which could obviously be catastrophic. I, I don't even know if people fully understand how catastrophic that could be. You know, there are estimates that you could have literally millions of deaths over months as a consequence of you know, having your grid per- per- impaired to such a degree that an EMP would uh, entail. But that said, you know, they've kind of shifted their position to, well, you know, the U.S. has programs, too. And, and we've seen we've had spy balloons over our shores as well. So, you know, I think that's probably a, a tacit admission and acknowledgement of what U.S. intelligence has said. And, and I should back up and say it's really disturbing that it's very hard to know and trust almost any of the reporting that comes out of our agencies, the National Security Law Enforcement Intelligence agencies because they have been so hyper politicized. And it's always been that way to some extent. I think it may differ in terms of the nature and degree of it. You know, dating back to Truman, for example, he spoke about the fact that, you know, I thought I was president, but essentially the administrative state runs the show. And so that's been a recurring theme really since its advent and its metastasization. But that said, one of the huge downsides and uh, detrimental aspects of what we've seen in recent years and the politicization and weaponization of these agencies is that you don't know what's true and what's false. 
and how they're positioning themselves. And that's before, of course, you get into intra and interagency squabbles on intelligence and what they want to message and communicate and the like. So it's very hard to know. It's hard to decipher facts from fiction, from speculation, from propaganda here. But China seemingly, I would say, has engaged in a, a tacit admission that this was their spy balloon and, and maybe some other ones as well. We don't know based upon what the administration has said, a by dint of the fact that they have vacillated to, oh, the U- well, the U.S. does this as well. That said, you know, these diplomatic meetings between Antony Blinken and his counterparts and the like, to me, this is sort of superficial and window dressing. I look much more to actions than words. And in one of the seminal moments, and I wrote this for Newsweek, and we've discussed this at length many times. You know, I said from the start, from the Trump administration and the 2020 campaign onward, that this would be, whereas for the Trump administration, I thought U.S.-China policy and reorienting that in America's national interest was the greatest achievement on the foreign policy side. And by the way, when I interviewed him, he actually disputed that. He wanted to loud, he wanted to tout some other achievements. But I thought given the size, scope, and nature of the China challenge, that is by far the greatest challenge we face, and thus that the reorientation of that relationship was a seminal achievement for that administration. And the Biden administration has been boxed in to some extent because of the popularity, some of those policies, I'm thinking particularly with respect to tariffs. But another kind of leitmotif that we've addressed at length, the fact that the administration killed the China initiative, which was the preeminent counterintelligence program trying to combat communist China's malign efforts here, while at the same time it was expanding, announced it was the DOJ was expanding its domestic counterterrorism unit, spoke volumes to me, not just symbolically, but substantively about the fact that the real threat from the perspective of our administration and much of our administrative state is not communist China. It's American citizens who dissent from their rule. And that to me was a seminal moment. I think it perfectly illustrates the orientation of the administration. Uh, so I look at a lot of these diplomatic meetings and, you know, kind of the the niceties around them and such as uh, more distraction than anything else. When the administration talks about, you know, we're going to have a co- competitive relationship in some areas and a cooperative relationship in others, et cetera. How can you say that? You are dealing with an adversary that wants to be the dominant world power. You want to replace us as the dominant world power, you will stop at nothing to achieve it. You see how the CCP treats its own people. You can imagine how it would treat Americans were we living under the CCP's thumb. And so, you know, the first principle would be do no harm. Let's stop doing every possible thing that we do as a government in private society as well to empower, enable that regime, allow them to subvert us. And this administration has not done that. And that, I think, is the big takeaway thus far. And it was perfectly predictable because. Right. As I've written at Newsweek and elsewhere, you know, besides Joe Biden's compromise himself and his family's compromise, the whole cabinet and most of the senior level officials have been longtime proponents of integration and engagement, which has served as the greatest influence operation of all time for the CCP. So it's extremely well said. And one other related aspect of this whole saga that is just immensely troubling to me, and you and I have also discussed this a little bit off camera, is from really what appears to be just a series of outright, fairly unvarnished lies that the administration has told the American people when it comes 
to this spy balloon in particular, perhaps the broader program. And I'm thinking in particular, I read a Substack post just last week from Eric Erickson, who was a recent guest on this show, and he was citing this paragraph from a Washington Post article. I'm just going to read it, actually. This is, this is a paragraph from a recent Washington Post article about the Biden administration and its handling or lack thereof of the Chinese spy balloon. This paragraph in the Washington Post reads, quote, The People's Liberation Army has sent spy balloons over Guam before, as well as Hawaii, to monitor U.S. military installations, officials have said. But the days-long flyover of the continental United States was novel, and it sparked confusion inside the Chinese government as diplomats scrambled to disseminate a cover story that the balloon had been blown off course while was collecting innocuous meteorological data, U.S. officials said. So as Eric points out, there are at least three confirmed lies that we can discern from that very paragraph. The first is that the administration claimed initially that they didn't discover this balloon until it was over Alaskan airspace, specifically over the Aleutian Islands in southwest Alaska. Now they're saying we were aware of it from launch. Second, apparently they were saying initially, right? I mean, if you think bad things initially that the Trump administration had these spy balloons flying across the continental U.S., but no, now the Biden administration is calling this one, quote unquote, novel. And third, The administration contended that it was too dangerous to shoot down the Chinese spy balloon once it was over land. But now, since then, it's shot down three other objects, of course, you know, one in Alaska, one in the Yukon, one in Lake Huron. So what the hell is going on here? I mean, like that is basically what I'm leaning up to. I mean, do you have the same takeaway? Is the administration just nakedly lying at this point? Well, and there's also been vacillating positions about did the spy balloon pose a threat or not? And we do know that there were movements on the ground at all of these military installations, the administration claims to essentially harden them against compromise and the like. But the fact that the responses on all of these seminal questions about what did you know, when did you know it, what did you do about it, and what was the rationale for those movements, the fact that the positions are constantly shifting, I do not believe is an issue of communications and optics. I think it's an issue of the substance of it. And one of the things that I noted early on was initial reporting from Bloomberg indicated that administration officials were most concerned first about the scuttling or the potential scuttling of the original Antony Blinken Xi Jinping meeting, which means that they were first looking to the spy balloon, not from the perspective of our national interest, defending our sovereignty in airspace, but is this provocation or perceived provocation going to potentially scuttle this meeting that we're planning to have? That is a completely backwards way to be looking at what is transpiring. Now, to your point, and to me, the really serious questions raised are beyond the substance of the capabilities of these balloons. And I think these balloons were capable. And look, there is some credence to the argument, even though I think it's a distraction, that China spies on us through the devices in our pockets and at our desks at all times. Undoubtedly true. But of course, the the way that you breach our our airspace, how we respond to it publicly, what we did privately, of course, China is watching that with great focus. We don't know what they gleaned from whatever information may have been beamed back from that balloon. We don't know how many balloons have been over airspace. And I don't know what is worse. I don't know if it's worse if we really did not detect these incursions in the past, or if those at the senior level, the principal level, were kept in the dark about it, not clear to me what's more disturbing about that. 
And then it's unclear from the administration's words, is it that these airships posed no threat or is it that they were so commonplace that we're not supposed to worry about them, even though we did pose a threat because it happened on the other guy's watch? Suddenly we're supposed to not take it as seriously as if it's commonplace. So there's a question to me of did we actually lack the capability to detect these things or did we know all along and allow them to proceed and act with essentially total impunity until some Montanans on the ground, civilians spotted it. None of those responses are at all satisfactory or should be sufficient to the American people. So I think it's a disaster almost any way you look at it. Uh, And then add on to it. And I'm no expert in debris recovery when it comes to aerial vehicles and then being shot out of the air. Was it the proper call to shoot down that balloon over the water where, as forces indicated, some of it might be able to evade kind of the search and rescue crew, not to mention sink to the bottom of the ocean. Uh, Was that the right play as well? Or might it have been better to find a flat, open area, hopefully a non-windy one over Montana, sparsely populated to shoot it down? Yeah, I I was going to say, like, as if there is no prairie or sparsely populated terrain between Montana and off the coast of Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. I mean, give me a freaking break. I, I mean, this stuff isn't even remotely plausible, what they're telling us. And, you know, uh, tragically, to your point, sometimes this rank incompetence, unfortunately, is the least disturbing answer, as disturbing as it oftentimes actually is. So let's go ahead and take it to a quick commercial break here. Stay with us. We've got Ben Weingarten on this week. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. So, Ben, let's stick to the topic at hand, but pull it out a little bit. So at the second National Conservatism Conference in Orlando, Florida, about a year and a half ago or so, you moderated a panel on this topic. China, I was standing there in the back of the room. It was it, it was extremely entertaining. And the most entertaining part of this particular panel was when a full scale debate broke out between Mike Pillsbury of the Hudson Institute and Mike Anton of Hillsdale College and the Claremont Institute. Specifically, they got into a debate, fundamentally, I guess, really, about whether if push comes to shove, if Xi Jinping ultimately does send the People's Liberation Army into Taipei, whether Taiwan is ultimately worth the U.S. going to war to keep out of Chinese hands. And this is very kind of black-pilled thinking, I guess, the very fact that we're even having this this conversation. It would have been utterly anathema, I think, to a prior generation of conservative Americans. Certainly, there's no one in kind of the 1980s era kind of Reagan foreign policy establishment that, he, that would even kind of think to have these conversations, which, which I think was, frankly, kind of Mike Pillsbury's actual point in, the, in that exchange. Where do you think the U.S. itself stands? And I guess that necessarily means where you think the Biden administration stands, at least as of now, when it comes to that particular question. And what do you think the right answer actually is? It's interesting on this question for the Biden administration, given that Joe Biden himself so many times has seemingly gone out on a limb relative to his handlers, it would appear, in saying essentially that America is committed to 
go to the ends of the earth to fight on behalf of and defend Taiwan. The military, to some extent, it seems, has taken a similar posture, obviously not as directly and overtly as Biden, although you'll note that we still have not had a massive redeployment and push of all available forces to that region. And obviously, of course, we're spending tens of billions of dollars regularly on Ukraine, which represents a massive diversion of resources that might be needed to deter you know, what I think we all agree is by far the graver threat to America's national interest of China. But that that debate really raised fundamental questions that I've long argued ought to be debated openly, even without obviously the U.S. government tipping its hand, because it, it brought it home in the sense that you kind of had Mike Anton and, and David Goldman as well, essentially raising the question of, are you willing to risk a nuclear weapon going off in Los Angeles or some kind of nuclear exchange where U.S. cities get taken out in defense of Taiwan? And that is a very stark question. Of course, you know, we're, we're, there are similar questions raised around you know, to the extent Russia deploys tactical nuclear weapons, either in its near abroad or further. Is it worth it? And that raises the question of where should America's blood and treasure be prioritized? What is fundamentally the most significant uh, strategic areas and interests and assets that we have to focus and surge those resources? And then what's the most efficacious way to defend those interests as well? And I find this to be a very difficult question with respect to Taiwan, because I see a bridge Colby, for example, who I think is a realist, who believes in a prudent use of forces, having overwhelmingly powerful forces, but only very strategically deployed and only used in very narrow circumstances so as to avoid greater conflagrations. That said, I also, you know, I think there's merits to the idea of, you know, how much is Taiwan willing to do to defend its national interest? Obviously, this is in China's backyard. It's not in our backyard. How cataclysmic would it be to the extent that incursion was successful you know, beyond obviously how devastating and terrible it would be for a beacon of freedom? and a symbolic and substantive illustration of what a free China itself could look like. So you have to weigh all of these different factors. To me, it comes down to there is no question that if China has supremacy in its near abroad and particularly over the seas through which trillions of dollars traverse, that would be hugely disastrous for America. And to the extent it had a chokehold over that commerce, uh, it would pose massive threats to our ability to function as anything resembling a free and independent society to, to prosper and the like. To me, the question comes down to what is the way for us to best deter China, help the Taiwanese build themselves up to use force multipliers in that region to burden share? And I'm thinking there, of course, of Japan, among others, while at the same time, to your point, and I think you've argued this very eloquently, especially in recent writings, you know, the fact that this also entails us building up capabilities such that if disaster does strike, we are not left totally hapless to the extent, and of course, there's far more to Taiwan than this, but the dominant semiconductor producer, chip producer in the world, uh, potentially does not have that capacity anymore. I also right. wonder to the extent that there was an invasion by China, if Taiwan might sabotage the Chinese and destroy their semiconductor capacity or threaten it anyway. I mean, that itself might serve as a deterrent to some extent. So I'm not in my own mind necessarily clear about 
you know, how far am I willing to go in Taiwan's defense? But I think the first thing is, how do you contingency plan in, to the extent disaster does strike, strike so that we are not left hapless? Second, what is the most efficacious way to deter China and build up other forces so that it is not simply the U.S. versus China over Taiwan? To what extent is Taiwan willing to beef up its own defenses and to prepare to go to the mattresses, essentially, to survive? And then where can we build up or leverage allies and partners in the region? But beyond that, of course, to the extent that China believes it will be subject to a catastrophic attack, to the extent Taiwan is struck, that's obviously a huge turn in and of itself. And one insight, which I haven't really spoken about publicly very often, but as I alluded to, I interviewed President Trump subsequent to his presidency, and we talked a bit about Taiwan, and he's kind of indicated this uh, publicly since. But there was this perception out there, and it was always portrayed this way, you know, Trump doesn't care about Taiwan. He considers it this, you know, piddling territory, and it's not worth Americans dying over it. But what he told me was he made it very clear personally, one-on-one -on -one to Xi Jinping, that he did not want Xi Jinping making a move on Taiwan, and that if he did, there would be hell to pay in China for it. And I believe that that one man, and this is kind of a, a scary insight, but I think also a one that rings true throughout history. I think one commander in chief who puts forth that sort of deterrent directly to his peer, to his counterpart, I think that that did serve as a deterrent. And I don't think we have that deterrence now. So I think the odds increase, obviously, with a weak U.S. president, with Xi Jinping getting up in age with him seeking to seize ever greater gobs of power, potentially with competing forces in the CCP threatening him. And every time you see that there's a purge of party officials, I think that's an illustration of the fact that there are potentially loose threads, so to speak, that the power, the, the leaders in power feel they need to tie up. To me, the odds increase significantly under Joe Biden that there will be an incursion in Taiwan and only a Republican president may serve as a, a near-term deterrent, ultimately. No, it's extremely well said. I mean, the model that I always come back to for foreign policy deterrence, including in, in this part of the world, and we've discussed this a little bit as well, Ben, is the Trump-era Abraham Accords style of deterrence, to me, has to be kind of the best kind of national conservative, national populist kind of American, frankly, path forward. And what I mean by that is if you look at what the Trump administration did, obviously not by itself, but kind of working hand in hand with its allies, the Middle East, what it did when it came to the Abraham Accord is it brought countries that are not necessarily like-minded on a whole lot of issues together. I'm thinking here, of course, about Israel, the UAE, Bahrain, and Morocco. But it brought them together for purely transactional tactical reasons, really, partially about investments and trade and you know, venture capital and, and high tech and all of that, but really mostly about kind of crass geopolitics, about the 30,000 pound elephant in the region, which is, of course, the Iranian regime and their long, slow march towards potentially acquiring a nuclear weapon. And, and it seems to me that if you can try to replicate that in the Far East, which the U.S. is doing a little bit with the so-called Quad Alliance, thinking here of countries like Japan, India and Australia there. 
But building on top of that, which is, to put it mildly, something that the Biden administration has not done a particularly good job of doing. But, you know, as you alluded to, I, I, you mentioned Japan. I, I have been a longtime proponent of, of, of Japan rearming itself. The psychology of rearming Japan is a very sensitive topic. I, I've actually been to Japan multiple times. I've spoken with Japanese there about this. Given their unique and sorry history when it comes to, to nuclear weapons, this is a very, very fraught conversation with Japan. But I, I have certainly been a long proponent that they should, I don't know how else to say it, just just get over that, frankly, and kind of deal with the reality of 2023 and ultimately rearm. So, uh, Ben, we're starting to run out of time here, but I do want to transition to a slightly different topic here in our in our main time. So, you know, I, I think people might be remiss from this conversation kind of listening to it and thinking, oh, wow, Ben Weingarten, he's like a super smart guy when it comes to China and foreign policy and all of that. But you're not as well informed as you are on China. You know, you're a generalist and, and, and you're extremely eloquent about all sorts of other issues. So I want to at least touch on another issue. You, you have become, from my perspective, one of the right of center commentariats, kind of leading most persistent and most eloquent spokespersons about the threat of the woke ideology itself. And what I want to kind of just unpack with you here in our remaining time on this show is how to combat the woke ideology specifically from kind of this national conservative lens, this point of view of this idea that this ideology doesn't necessarily see demarcated distinctions between the public sector and the private sector. It's just the ideology itself. So put another way, it's very different, of course, than kind of the old kind of, you know, deregulation czars from the 70s and 80s just saying, oh, big government's the problem. Well, you know, big government obviously can be a problem, but the threat these days is quite a bit different than that. So why don't you just unpack that a little bit for us there and what what it means for the American right in the year 2020 to actually meaningfully push back against the woke ideology. Yeah, well, first, you know, thank you for those kind words. And much of what you've written and said has also informed my thinking and, and caused me to check some of my own premises, you know, when it comes to how we think about what the American Republican system, you know, as in the classical Republican system is, ought to be, and what must be done to preserve it. And you know, one of the one element is that those founding values and principles, they don't come from nothing. It's not a content free system of, okay, we, we will be a liberal republic. And thus, if illiberals take over every institution and subjugate everyone else, that's okay, because that occurred under a free system. If that was the case, it would have been a totally nihilistic project from the start. And I didn't always think in my own mind, I didn't always think about you know, this kind of paradigm through that lens. But I think we've seen what's very clear is that, to your point, the distinction between public and private in, in many ways has gone away uh, in no small part as a consequence of you know, the traditional threat of big government. If you have government that is literally and figuratively invested in and controlling of every aspect of American life, then as I put it in a, in a recent piece about this at Newsweek, you know, essentially you have the or maybe it was epic times, but same same difference here in terms of the argument that you have institutions take on the character of a state. It's in their own self-interest to do so. And woke ideology and this anti-cultural revolution that's just accelerated in recent years, it's always been there on the campuses and it's slowly been creeping its way into our institutions, but it's certainly been the ideology of the state for a long time. It's just being codified in ever more dramatic ways. For example, in the first day executive order on affirmatively advancing equity by the Biden administration and the, the new executive order building much further on that. 
you have an ideology of the state. It's also the ideology of every single influential, powerful institution within our country, pretty much now. No institution is safe from it. Uh, and that force, those influential elite forces run up against the roughly 50% plus of Americans who are just common sense, not even necessarily staunch conservatives or national conservatives and the like, but people who want to live a traditional, normal American life, which is now defined as a radical and irredeemable and deplorable. So what do you do in a war when your institutions are not have not only been totally subverted, but are working to hollow away the very foundations on which they grew in the first place? And obviously, this is incredibly stark when you look at universities, which are supposed to be institutions that allow for human flourishing by permitting the debate of ideas and developing people intellectually and the like. And they've gone completely against academic freedom and notions of academic freedom, but of course, in the state as well, uh, which is, you know, looks more tyrannical by the day. And, you know, our system looks more fascistic, quite frankly, by the day in terms of private enterprises, putatively private enterprises, which of course are hyper-regulated by the state and conferred all sorts of privileges and benefits by the state, essentially acting as state agents, not only with big tech and you know, TV providers and the like, but payment platforms and, and far beyond that in every single aspect of our lives. What do you do? The first thing is you cannot continue using public funds to destroy the system itself. Um, now, that is a relatively modest aspect of what needs to happen to combat the yeah, world market. Sorry to cut you off. I, 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 want, I want to let you continue. But to me, that's kind of just like the Hippocratic Oath of like, first, do no harm, right? <laughs> right. And and that the fact that that is, is considered radical, at least in terms of practically ra- a radical position, tells you how far behind we are in defending the country. And one of the reasons I'm so focused on this, by the way, is that I don't even think we're going to get near combating China to the extent we don't get our own domestic house in order. China is like far removed from the fundamental problems that we have here, because ultimately, at the end of the day, it comes down to America, I believe, always will have the capacity or the capability to achieve tremendous things to flourish on this earth. But if we do not have the will and not only not the will, but if we believe that we are an irredeemable and deplorable country and that thus we have to tear down every single institution or if a cynical ruling elite believes it's necessary to propagate that view to usurp ever greater power while the country fails, that's obviously untenable. So the first thing is stop funding it. Then the second thing is, what do you want to replace? And, and not only stop funding it, but expose it for all to see, fight it using every single lever of power you may have. Obviously, we have these fights going on. This is a microcosm of this within colleges. Should boards of trustees at colleges uh, be able to use their prerogative of oversight and power to, even in North Carolina, just set up a school that promotes civic life? And that's causing a huge uproar there. Obviously, in Florida, we have a far wider and more ambitious set of reforms that are being contemplated for state institutions. But obviously, you start with the lowest hanging fruit, which is using your funding powers, using your oversight powers, using the powers that the state has over state institutions, not to further and promote those uh, policies or institutions that are very undermining of the interests of the states themselves. That's the first thing. And then the next part of the motto is, how do you put in place something better and something that actually achieves what we believe to be, you know, as you've described it, essentially the common good? How do you further the common good? I pray that we get to the point of having those debates over how do we wield power and not only just in 
those public institutions, but also how do we actually foster a culture so that private institutions of their own volition do not need public power to be wielded in order to defend the actual bases of those institutions. I pray that we get there, but obviously it's a huge project just to get the point of, okay, let's use government power to get back to what the country ought to be about because the other side will use government power to the nth degree. And there's no issue of tit for tat when the other side is doing it. And this is the reality. So, right. you know, for those who are uncomfortable about that, the fact of the matter is a government can't serve the purpose of destroying itself. So you better combat that because this is existential and the constitution is not a suicide pact and there's nothing unconstitutional about using public institutions to actually benefit the public. And when the other side is doing it to engage in ends that are ruinous of the republic, it's incumbent upon you to defend it. So I think that's a starting point. And we could have huge debates about ultimately then what is the role of the state after it's fought back and assault on these very values and principles. And we will have a robust debate between libertarians and national conservatives and traditional conservatives and others. And that will be a, a robust debate and I'll look forward to having it, but we won't even get there to the extent the institutions are totally perverted and subversive of the very basis that allowed them to spring up in the first place. Extremely well said. I mean, to me, and you said this with that wonderful quip from the middle of last century, this line that the Constitution is not a suicide pact. Similarly speaking, I mean, the American Republic, you know, is not an experiment in, in values neutrality. I mean, the idea that the people who founded this country, who refounded the country to kind of use kind of Claremont, Harry Jaffa phraseology, you know, in the 1860s with the 14th Amendment and all of that. You know, the idea here that our constitutional order and our public life in general would necessarily be morally neutral between various conceptions of the good, the common good, as, as you just phrased it there, between the, the excesses of the woke ideology, the Ibram X. Kennedy critical race theory garbage, the gender ideology garbage, the idea that we would have to be morally neutral in our laws and our policies, our rhetoric, all of the above, between that and a much sounder conception, that which was embodied by the great John Adams when he famously said that the Constitution was only made for a moral and religious people, it is wholly inadequate for any other, the idea that we would have to be neutral between these various conceptions that might yield the good is just utter, utter, utter bunk. And I do, I do retain some cautious optimism that people on our side are slowly waking up to it. So Ben, we're really just about out of time here. I want to get you out though on a total curveball of kind of a, a final question. So you mentioned that you grew up in an intensely political household. You are a New Jersey native. The, the Garden State is politically interesting to me insofar as it is a not negligible number of electoral college votes. And there are some signs of of life, actually. The 2022 gubernatorial election there was very close. Ryan Gerdusky, another former guest on this show, had a recent Substack post over the past month or so where he kind of went deep on New Jersey, kind of looking at the, at, at the state legislature. Do you see any signs that your home state might actually become competitive again for the Republican Party? Well, unfortunately, I blame the success of Florida and some other places for causing an exodus <laughs> to the voters that might actually help Very fair. in that project. Um, you know, I think my sense is that if I'm if I'm going to be sanguine about New Jersey, which I spent most of my life here uh, and then in New York. So I've had the great fortune of being under a blue state rule virtually my entire life. But you know, if I'm being sanguine, I think that you did see 
that there is a line where if there is a, a silent majority, if not a very sizable minority who reject the excesses of wokeism, I think that there is a red line around our children and what the state does to children. And so certainly with the COVIDian tyranny that existed in New York, it existed to a lesser extent in New Jersey, but it was still ever present. What happened in the schools, broadly speaking, you know, first as parents actually witnessed the kind of indoctrination to which their kids were subjected, but then also obviously being locked out of school with the COVIDian tyranny and such, that did cause a backlash. And I do think, you know, if there's any silver lining to wokeism on steroids, it's that normal people, you know, these kind of 80-20 issues, they really do cause revulsion. Now, we also have very short-term memories today. Movements happen, they come and they go. So I am fearful that people will very quickly forget what the abnormal that was normalized over the last several years. But I do think you saw a swift reaction to people being aghast at what they saw in the treatment of their children. And of course, you know, a government essentially saying we're going to destroy your liberty. We're going to destroy your, your livelihood. And we're going to indoctrinate your children in America hatred for months on end. And maybe after that as well. And so that did cause a backlash and that's how you had you know, much closer race than would have been anticipated for governor here. Obviously, what you had in Virginia in 2021 and the gubernatorial race there as well. So it gives me some hope that everyone, there is a breaking point for everyone. And it's a question of, you know, from the left's perspective, will they be progressive enough, slow enough in the march so that they don't awaken too many people and ultimately hurt their bid for total hegemony, essentially? That said, and, and, you know, there's obviously been there's been shifts over time, you know, with kind of who the Republican coalition consists of, where longtime you know, labor Democrats and certainly in pockets of this state has certainly changed where Republicanism has become more of a, a cultural marker, a cultural representation of of electorate than necessarily a signifier of their views on a whole slew of issues. So, you know, I think I would credit Trump in large part for that of effectuating that change of you know, becoming a working more of the working class party, the traditional American party, pro-American. You know, even if you were for big government and a whole slew of programs, you still believed in defending the country. You still believed in colorblindness and true equality and the like between people. So and 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 anti-PC-ness and the like uh, being Americans qua Americans. So that has caused a shift. And you definitely see that in New Jersey as well. Um, all that said, you know, I think our governor here has ambitions to be and aspirations to be the president of the United States. Um, I don't know if we would dismiss that out of hand, but that's a scary thought, having lived under him for a little bit. Uh, but I do think that the, the silver lining to the woke excesses is that it does cause a backlash. But when you have a mass exodus from these blue states of anyone who is productive and wants to avoid these taxes or is out of school and no longer willing to pay tens of thousands of dollars every year to send their kids to these schools, uh, but that causes a problem. And, you know, it's to the benefit of the rest of the country that they get conservative Americans, but to the detriment of some of these blue states. So the exodus part is a fascinating part of this broader conversation. And we're not going to have time to fully unpack it, unfortunately, right now. But I also have had this thought in recent years. I mean, I, I have literally written, I have said any number of times, you know, if you are subject to blue state tyranny, especially going back during COVID, if you're living under Gretchen Whitmer, God forbid, in, in Michigan or a state like that, 
you know, I have literally ridden, I would say, you know, you know, you have greener pastures in a state like Texas, Tennessee, or of course, where I live in Florida. But there is, that is very much a double-edged sword. I, I mean, just to kind of take the example of Michigan, I mean, you know, how many Michiganders fled to various kind of warmer and freer climes during the course of COVID? Was that the reason perhaps why Michigan was not as competitive? I mean, it's hard to say. I mean, it's hard to say, and we're definitely going to be pouring through the data, I think, to try to unpack a lot of this. Uh, you know, I think some of our friends call this the great sort, the great sorting of America. Perhaps it's inevitable, but there are very clear downsides, perhaps. And, you know, I appreciate that you're able to kind of point that out for us as well. So, Ben, it's been a lot of fun, my friend. Thank you so much for joining us this week. We'll have to have you back on soon. Thanks for having me, Josh. Really appreciate it. So really great conversation there with Ben Weingar. And as the case may be, we have a lot of great conversations. And actually, there's going to be a lot of changes to the Josh Hammer show coming up. So to the extent that you are not already doing so, you have to go ahead and subscribe. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you are getting your podcasts. We do depend on the algorithms for you to literally subscribe. And most important, go ahead and leave that review. Write it down. Don't just give us a five-star rating. Go ahead and write down the, the review. Again, that is just how the algorithms work. But if you like what you hear, just another reminder here, I've got a weekly newsletter out called The Josh Hammer Report. You can find that at newsweek.com slash newsletter. We just rolled that out a couple months ago, so that's going to be getting bigger and better than ever as well. And we have a lot of good stuff coming up for you, and we're just very excited to share with you. But for now, we hope you enjoyed this conversation with Ben Weingarten, and we will see you next time. Being a staple in American media for over 90 years, Newsweek now brings you an exceptional lineup of podcasts. The debate. They'll recognize how these policies aren't working. They'll feel the pain and they'll change their behavior. The Josh Hammer Show. Restore the principles and the political paradigms of the American founding. The Crystal Knight Show. Just because officers are black doesn't mean that the policing system still isn't inherently racist. Fast women. Chevy's actually doing really well and Honda's really not. Wow. It's like the opposite of most people's perception of them. It is. The parting shot. Every year when the new nominations are announced, I get this excited, nostalgic feeling, and it brings out that little kid in me who just loved movies. The Royal Report. Harry and Meghan's head of comms has announced they now move forward to their kind of future outside the royal family. Newsweek Podcasts. New episodes drop weekly. Download or listen now at Newsweek.com or wherever you get your podcasts.